word of God for us this morning. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And as they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And as he said, to, and, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to kill him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do give you thanks and praise for this scripture. We pray, as always, that you would work it powerfully into our hearts at this time we ask. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you would, please be seated. Grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. A quick question here. I want you to put in your mind a uh, relationship you had that has changed over the years. Uh, many of us have those kind of relationships. They start out one way and they end up morphing, moving in a different direction. That's uh, for a lot of different reasons. And often there's a tipping point or a, a turning point. You turn the corner at a certain spot in a relationship uh, that changes. Now, that can be for good or for ill. I remember very well at the spot I'd been dating Kelly for some time and there was a particular moment where I realized it was a tipping point in our relationship that uh, I didn't just want to date her, that I wanted to ask her to marry me. Uh, also, I was in a relationship, a working relationship with a gentleman for a while and there was always tension. There was always a little bit of tension between us and that relationship, but we thought that we could work well together and so we kept at it but eventually we got to that tipping point where we realized that we could no longer work uh, together. So a relationship, relationships can come up with these tipping points, these turning points at different spots. In what we're looking at today in this passage is one of those turning points, one of those tipping points for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we've been looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. And we've been following along here as the Jesus enters into this world. He announces the gospel message by saying, basically, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he is, you know, now that Christ has come, the kingdom of God has come. And we take that picture into our understanding as we look through the rest of the first chapter of Mark, where Jesus begins to work out what that kingdom looks like. And it centers around the exercise of his power and his authority, and you begin to see him do wondrous things. And then in chapter 2, you begin to see not just that Jesus is continuing to do kingdom events, wonderful things, but now the question is, why can he do these things? And you begin to get the claim that Jesus himself understands that he is God. And because of that, he is able to do a lot of these things, and there is opposition that arises the Pharisees and the scribes begin to push back against Jesus a little bit. Well, we now come to a tipping point in this relationship, a turning spot, and I want to get to that as a development of the plot because what happens here is that most of us know the biblical story. We know where the story is headed, but we are getting there, and this passage is a turning point for us, and I want to make sure that we don't miss the turning point character of 
this passage. So beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, if you're there with me, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, it, it begins with. Now, uh, again, here is a nebulous term. It just simply means that at some point in the future, uh, previous to the earlier story, Jesus enters into the synagogue, but it does kind of give a little bit of a reference to where that synagogue is. Uh, earlier in chapter 1, uh, Jesus had entered into the synagogue at Capernaum, his kind of home base for doing ministry up in Galilee. And so when the text here says again he entered into the synagogue, the implication isn't that it happened right on the heels of the previous story, but more the idea that at some other unrelated point, Jesus came into that same synagogue, the place where he had been before. So he enters into the synagogue. Now, why is he going to the synagogue? Uh, many of you know that uh, the Old Testament or the Jewish understanding of the synagogue is parallel to, the synag to uh, our understanding of a church. So when we talk about Jesus entering into the synagogue, he's basically going to church. Now, you can go to church for a lot of reasons. You can go to church for uh, you know, any day of the week, etc. But it's clear from this text that Jesus is going on the Sabbath, which is a day of worship. And so it's really, you're really stretching it not to think that what Mark wants to tell us is that Jesus is going to the synagogue, Jesus is going to church so that he can worship. So he is eager to go to church, to the synagogue, in order to worship. And a man with a withered hand was there. Uh, first off, what, what's he doing there? Well, again, there's a chance that he could be there for any number of reasons, but the only real viable one is that he is there to worship. So Jesus comes to the synagogue to worship. The man with a withered hand comes to the synagogue to worship. Now, he has a withered hand. Um, uh, just to put a little context into it, he's, he's crippled in his hand, but the implication probably is not just in his fingers or his hand. There's probably... Uh, a crippling, a withering of his whole arm. So here's a man that is, is crippled in his arm as he comes to worship the Lord. Verse 2, and they watched Jesus. Now who's the they? Uh, that becomes very crystal clear later in the passage. This is the Pharisees. This is those people who up until this point in Jesus' ministry have been his kind of opponents. They've been the foil to his ministry as he has introduced the kingdom of God. Here the kingdom is at hand. The opponents of that expression of the kingdom that Jesus is all about are the Pharisees here. And they're kind of pushing back a little bit. And the Pharisees were watching Jesus. Now where are the Pharisees? They are in the synagogue. They are at church. And yet they are watching Jesus. Then the word watching here is, is scrutinized. They are scrutinizing with the intent to find something wrong. Here are the religious leaders of the community, and they have come to church with a critical spirit. They have come to church to look not upward at the Lord, not inward at their hearts, but around them to have a critical spirit. I defy you in your heart not to confess at this moment that very often you too come to church exactly that way. Not exclusively, but it's hard not to realize that most of us come to church with multiple motives. We want to worship the Lord. We also like the singing. We like the fellowship. We like the atmosphere. 
we like the Bible teaching, and yet sometimes, too, we like to look at other people, and very often that looking at other people involves a critical negative spirit. Here the Pharisees are at worship. They're at worship, and yet they are scrutinizing, they are watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, many of you know that uh, one of the ways in which the Old Testament uh, command to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy was manifested both in the Old Testament but certainly in the Pharisees' teaching through time was to limit the amount of work or to outlaw work that you would do on the Sabbath day. You were not supposed to work and the Pharisees had 39 different categories of things you were not, activities that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath day and work was part of that and healing somebody would be work. And so they are looking to see if Jesus is going to work, he is going to break the Sabbath rule in order to keep it holy. They're saying, is he actually going to do something, heal this man on the Sabbath? At the end of verse 2, so that they might accuse him. Now they have, up until this point, had these moments of conflict with Jesus. They're challenging him, they're pushing back. Uh, They got so far as to say, hey, look, what you're doing is blasphemy. So this is not a, just a theological dialoguing partner here. They are really clashing, and they're looking for more ammunition on Jesus. What, what can we find about Jesus in order to really get at him about what he's doing here? And so they're looking at him, watching him to see if he will do something that they can then accuse him, that they can add to their arsenal to be frustrated with Jesus. Verse 3 And Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, the the picture is, and we have seen Jesus heal people in the past, and as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus heal other people at other situations. And very often, Jesus takes them aside, or Jesus speaks to them privately. Not always. Sometimes it's in a very public setting. Here you picture that Jesus didn't take the withered man into the back Sunday school room or around the corner. He is, does this incredibly visual, up front, in front of everybody thing, brings the man with the withered hand up front. Now part of the message here is the recognition that the man with the withered hand is in worship and he's allowed to be in worship But he's got such a physical defect here that he would kind of be most certainly a second-class worshiper. You would kind of separate him off a little bit if you could. He would have his own kind of area because not, not that he's not appropriate to come to worship, but he's got a withered hand and he's not really supposed to be worshiping God. It's okay that he's there, but not great. And here Jesus pulls him right smack in front of everybody and says, come here. Now, I have no idea if the man knew who Jesus was or if he had any expectation of what was coming, but Jesus pulls him forward. And then in verse 4, Jesus says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Well, that's somewhat self-evident. The answer to that is pretty clear, but you can see why Jesus is asking the question. They are watching him to see if he's going to do something bad, if he's going to heal somebody on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, is it right for me to do bad things on the Sabbath or to do good things on the Sabbath? And uh, of course, the 
the, the way Jesus phrases the question, it's self-evident. And they don't, nobody wants to say, oh, well, you're supposed to do bad things on the Sabbath. You know, God's law wants us to do bad things. And so, at the end of the question, they respond with silence. But they were silent. Now, why is that? Why don't the Pharisees just say, well, we're supposed to do good on the Sabbath? Well, clearly, because Jesus is about to do something good on the Sabbath. And they want to accuse him. But they can't bring themselves to say, oh, well, you're supposed to do something bad on the Sabbath. You're supposed to kill on the Sabbath. They can't do that. And so they're kind of caught on the horns of the dilemma. They don't know what to answer. But I think it's more than that. I think Jesus' question reveals something and they are struck dumb with shame. They are struck with shame. And we'll look at that in a few seconds here. Verse 5, and Jesus looked around at them with anger. Um, the, the word here is wrath. Jesus looked around at the Pharisees. He's got the Pharisees. He says, what's the point here, to do good or to do evil? And, and he, wants the, he wants them to say, well, to do good, then let's do good together. And he wants them that, and he says, what? and that they're silent before him, and their sinfulness brings forward in our Lord a wrath, an anger, a frustration. And yet not just that, because look at the next word, and he is grieved at their hardness of heart. The word there is, is sympathy, empathy sorrow. Jesus is at the same moment confronted by the sinful stubbornness of the Pharisees. He is at the same moment angry at them and, and sorrowful for the destructive work of sin in their lives. And anybody that has raised children knows exactly what that's like. There are moments when you just want to kill them because they're just so frustrating and they anger you. And at that, that, that same moment, you're so sorrowful for the trouble that they are finding themselves in, for the sin that has brought them into the situation with they're in. And that is precisely the Lord we gather to worship. He is a Lord that is at the same time frustrated and angry at sin and broken, sorrowful, and grieving for each one of us who are trapped in our sin. Jesus is angry, and he is grieving at their hardness of heart. This is just a cultural thing. When we talk about hardness of heart in our uh, contemporary world, what we largely mean is somebody cruel. If you're hard at heart, you're a cruel person. Um, that's not the implication here. A hardness of heart in their ter terminology would have been somebody that's very stubborn. Stubborn and unwilling to move and unbelief. Stubborn largely in their unbelief. And so here Jesus is, is angry at their stubbornness. He is grieved at their stubbornness. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. How does Jesus heal him? And of course he stretched his out and his hand is restored. How does he heal him? Not by touching him. Not by going through ritual motions. Not through some action. 
He heals him by the word of command. How many of us daily seek the word of command from the Lord? Lord, heal. Heal us physically. We've all got those friends and neighbors that are in need of physical healing. And yet we also have that deep abiding need to be healed spiritually, and most of us know it, are aware of it, and we want desperately to hear that voice of our Lord that says, be healed. And we can. We can hear that voice. We are given that voice in the scriptures. This is why we express so strongly our desire that you submit yourself to the Scriptures, that you put yourself under the authority of the Scriptures every day in your homes, with your families, weekly in a small group setting, worshiping here on Sunday, being involved in a Sunday school, somewhere, somewhere. Put yourself under the, consistently under the authority of the Scriptures so that you too can hear that word, stretch out your hand, that you can hear that word of command, be healed spiritually, physically maybe, but spiritually stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out and his hand is restored. Hold on to that for a second. He, his hand is restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel. Now we've talked about uh, Mark's use of the word immediate. That's how he moves things along. Mark's a very excitable kind of an author, and he's always doing something, and, and Jesus is always active. And here the Pharisees immediately go out, and they start holding counsel with the Her Herodians. Okay, so they immediately, what day of the week is it again? It's the Sabbath day. It's Sunday, it's Saturday. It's the, it's the day of worship. And what does Jesus just ask them? Is the Sabbath for good or for ill? Is it for saving a life or is it for killing? And here the Pharisees immediately go out of church, find the Herodians, and start talking about what? How can we kill this guy? They have answered Jesus' question. Is it for good or for ill? Is the Sabbath to save a life or is it to take a life? And their answer is to take a life. They collude here with the Herodians. Now, we don't know a whole lot about it. I don't want to get into details on the nature of the Herodians, so just allow me, trust me on this, when I can just say the Herodians represent the exact antithesis of the Pharisees. Politically, culturally, sociologically, Religiously, the Herodians are on one side of the spectrum and the Pharisees are on the other side of the spectrum. These two groups are natural enemies. They rarely come together. They don't come together on anything except for rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like we spend so much time here emphasizing that the gospel of our Lord is for everyone and it covers every person and that there is no boundary to the extent of the gospel spreading throughout this world, so it is true that there is no boundary to the offense of the gospel. People all over the world have been offended by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Here you have representatives of both sides of the political and, and religious and life and cultural spectrum joining together 
over hatred of Jesus. And notice what they want to do here. They held counsel about how to destroy him. Do you see the tipping point that we've crossed here? The corner that we have turned? Up until this point, the Pharisees have objected to Jesus. They have opposed Jesus. They are his dialogue partners. They are the foil in which he uh, uh, announces the kingdom. But most of you are biblically scholars well enough to know the story that in just a short number of chapters, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, will be sacrificed for us. And that will happen at the hands, at the prompting of the Pharisees and the Herodians and all of the people of this world who have gathered together to reject the kingdom of our Lord in Jesus Christ. But I want to focus back for a second on verse 4. So if you could, turn again, look at verse 4. Here's where Jesus says, and ask them the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? If the answer to that is so self-evident, why does Jesus ask the question, why can't the Pharisees answer it? Well, I think it's because they have the same problem that you and I so very often have. The Pharisees have separated the law away from the character of God. What is the law for? Is the law here for our good or is our law for our bad? Does God's law want to do good things for us or does God's law want to do bad things for us? Okay, stated like that, it's pretty clear. God's law wants to do good things for us. We know that. We realize that. But how often do we picture the law of God as the cosmic killjoy? God's law is that thing that restricts us, that hinders our freedom, that diminishes us, that, that keeps us bound, that keeps us trapped away from being what we really want to be. God's law is the antithesis of what we really want to do in this world. We want to go out and do things, and God's law keeps hemming us in, trapping us in little by little. That's exactly the way Satan portrayed it to Eve in the garden. Did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit of the trees? What kind of a killjoy is he? Did God really say that you will surely die? You won't die. Rather, you'll become like him. You'll be free. You'll be bursting forth from all of the bonds of the law. And Eve can't wait to run down that path. And we can't wait to run down that path. Because we actually do struggle with the reality that the gospel message is given for us for our good, not for ill. That the law of God, that God is for us, not against us. And I know we struggle with believing this because if we truly believe that the word of God was for us, that this is where we find the blessings of God, that this is where we find that he sets up for us to know him more clearly, to be immersed in the Lord is to be immersed in his word. Jesus offers this challenge to the Pharisees, and he says, come on, you guys, what's our Lord like? Does he want to do good things for us or bad things for us? Then certainly you've got to know that his word is doing good things for us. What is the Sabbath for? 
It's not to restrict us. It's not to hem us in. It's not to make us diminished. Rather, it is to restore us. And so the man with the withered hand has a restored hand. He has has been made new because of the work of the law of God. The Pharisees, in their perversion of the understanding of the law, want to keep this man crippled. They want to turn the synagogue into a house of bondage. They want to be purviewers of death and opponents to life. That's what's happened because they have become overwhelmed with the sense that the gospel, they have lost sight of the law of God, connecting them to the character of God, connecting it to the word of God, so that we might benefit from the blessings of God.